We're going to be in the book of Judges today. If you want to turn there, it's in the first part of your Bible. It's right after the book of Joshua. We're going to look at Judges 6 and 7 today as we talk about Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. I want to start with a question today. I was just meeting with somebody this week, Jeff. He was saying, hey, I love questions. And I love questions too because they kind of make us stop and think for a moment. But what would it take for you to experience peace right now in your life? What would it look like and what would it mean for you to experience peace right now? Maybe it means getting out of financial debt, uh, maybe debt that's crippling right now and it's all you can think about. Maybe it, it would require a relationship to be healed and reconciled that's just been taxing you. Maybe it's uh, kids returning to their faith and to the Lord. Uh, maybe it's a nagging illness, a health issue that has you worried and anxious constantly. On and on and on. We all have our own thing. And for many of us, for most of us, if we're honest, no matter how strong we are in our faith, we think about peace as something that washes over us and floods us once the challenges stop, once the trials end, once the, the chaos is stilled, then we can have peace. But as we've said many times in sermons, Peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of God. And that is so true. And you look throughout Scripture, as God delivered His people, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that He took them out of a situation, He rarely did that, but He was with them in the midst of the situation. Uh, the Lord was with uh, Jonah in the midst of the belly of the well. The, the Lord was with Daniel in the lion's den. The Lord was with His people as they passed through the Red Sea. On and on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fiery furnace. God was always with his people. And as Brittany said, it often required that they step out in faith because the answers and the solution wasn't always apparent. And it was as they stepped out that God met them and that God was there and brought us peace. So we want to talk about peace today. And you know, the reality is, is that sometimes the worst turmoil is not what's going on in the world. There's always something going on in the world that causes us to throw our hands up and to, to be in despair. But so much of the peace that we lack is about what's going on inside of us. The fear, the anxiety, the shame, the regret, the worry, the, um, the anxiety, the depression. Oftentimes we are being torn apart inside. There's a war going on within that rivals or eclipses the world around us. And it's hard to find God's peace. And so we want to look at the name Jehovah Shalom today to understand God's character in this regard and how he related to his people as Jehovah Shalom. And we're going to look at the character of Gideon today and see how Gideon found calm and security and stability through understanding the Lord as peace. The word shalom literally means wholeness. It means completeness and well-being. It means um, having things properly aligned or ordered. In essence, it means no more drama. Um, not the absence of conflict, but no drama in the midst of the conflict. It means harmony and balance. Peace, as we said, is not tied to circumstances. A person who's at peace is stable, calm, orderly, and at rest within because of the presence of God in our lives. I like what um, 
a Christian philosopher by the name of Cornelius Plantinga. I read a lot of him in college. He was just a brain and a half. But he said, the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. Someday when we are in the Lord's presence and we are living for Him, with Him for all of eternity, we will be experiencing shalom. We will be experiencing life as it was meant to be. And as we were meant to be, as we were created to be, in perfect joy and fulfillment and peace. There's many places in Scripture that could serve as our, uh, our passage today, as a backdrop for understanding the Lord God as Jehovah Shalom or the Lord our peace. But we're actually going to look at the only passage in the Bible where the word Jehovah Shalom is used, and that's in the book of Judges. And as I said, the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. You remember in the book of Joshua, it's a story about how Joshua led the Israelites out of captivity and into the promised land. And Judges um, kind of sets up this idea of God as peace. Even though their conflict has not ended, their, their drama is still continuing, we see God reaching out to his people through uh, the person of Gideon. Let's read together. Judges chapter 6, I'm going to kind of read through most of it and summarize the rest, but this is what we read. The Israelites did evil in the sight of God. Happens all the time. They did it repeatedly. We do it all the time. The Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years as a result of their rebelliousness and sin. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and the caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking away the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the donkeys. These enemy hordes uh, coming out with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts and arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So Israel sinned. They rebelled against God. And God said, I'm going to discipline you by causing your enemies to um, hold you in hostage, in bondage, in servitude. Verse 7, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from those who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, 
why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, for I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Verse 17, Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat, and with a basket of flour, he baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock, pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and it, the fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he brought, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Verse 22, When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Uh, the Hebrew is literally, the Lord replies, peace, peace. Do not be afraid, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Jehovah Shalom, our word for today, which means the Lord is our peace. The altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Ebiezer to this day. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to Gideon, take a second bull from your father's herd and one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altars to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it and then build an altar to the Lord your God here on, the hill, here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as an offering on the altar using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole as you cut, that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. So his dad and the town had been making uh, false places of worship to the foreign gods. The Asherah pole is a, a really disgusting uh, thing that I won't get into detail, but it was basically the dance pole of the day that the temple prostitutes did their acts on, and the people that came to worship were really engaging in relations with these temple prostitutes. They weren't there to offer sacrifices to God or to worship God, and God is saying, I'm sick of it. Rip it all down, and Gideon's like, okay, but I'm going to do it at night because I'm going to have a lot of people angry at me, including my dad. Verse 28, early in the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir Someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, Who did this? And after asking around <coughs> and making careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. 
But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down the altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubbabel, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. From this point, Gideon still isn't convinced that God is with him and going to help him. And so he does the Gideon's fleece thing where he says, God, I'm going to put a fleece on the threshing floor. And in the morning, if it's wet and the ground around it is dry, I'll know it's you. And God does that. And he says, please, please be patient with me one more time. This time, let the fleece be dry and the ground around it be wet. And God does that. And so Gideon finally has some uh, conviction and confidence that God is with him. And so God has Gideon raise up an army, and Gideon uh, sends word out to all the surrounding territories, and 30,000 men respond to help Gideon fight against the Midianites. But God wants to reduce the army, chapter 7, verse 2, because the Lord says, if I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So I have to reduce your army to such a low number that there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that I won the battle and not you. So God, first of all, says, let all of the warriors that are really afraid and timid go home. And 22,000 out of 30,000 men go home. And then you know the story where God says, okay, you're going to take the men down to the, the stream, the river, and those who cup the water in their hands and drink it like a dog will separate the men who just stoop down on the ground and, and drink it right out of the stream. And as, as Joe at Friday Morning Bible Study has said so many times, many uh, theologians and pastors have summarized that the guys that cupped it in their hands and lapped it like a dog were the most timid ones because they want to be looking out while they're drinking. The ones that were fearless were the ones that just had their head down in the stream and they didn't have to look out for the enemy or anybody that was going to attack them. So all of this dwindled down to 300 men, from 30,000 to 300. God had reduced the army not only to a small number, but to the, all the scaredy cats, you know, like all the ones that were left that were fearful. And God says, I'm going to win the battle with them. And you know the rest of the story, how they light the torches, they, they clash the pots together. There's three different assignments of men and God causes the Midianites and the enemies to fight among themselves and to actually kill themselves, and they win the battle. That's the story in short. I want to talk about some lessons in the midst of this story that we can pull from this, and we'll come back and, and tie this into the story repeatedly. But the first thing that I want to challenge us with today is that disobedience disrupts peace. Disobedience disrupts peace. So often we are living disobediently, we are living out of God's will, and we expect Him to still bless us. And we're wondering why everything is in disorder and disarray. As we look at the book of Judges, it's a cyclical book because there's a pattern that repeats itself. And perhaps you've seen this before, or you saw it today as we read. The Israelites rebel and they sin against God. Their sin leads to punishment and discipline. Oftentimes, I said, God would bring in a foreign nation to, to carry out that discipline. The discipline drives the people back to repentance, and they cry out for mercy and say, God, we're sorry. We will obey you again. We'll recommit ourselves. Please just deliver us. And so God delivers them and responds with forgiveness and uh, deliverance, 
And then he blesses the people. And after a time, the people get comfortable with the blessing. They become complacent and they compromise. And the whole thing starts over again. And we say, those dumb Israelites. And yet God says, look in the mirror. You know, that's the story of your life. That's exactly the pattern that I see in every one of the lives of my people. In times of prosperity, we forget about God. We don't need God. When things are tough, we cry out to him because we know there's no one else who answers and delivers. And we go through that over and over again. Disobedience disrupts peace. God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 57 of his prophecy, the Lord is speaking, but those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still but continually churns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked. That's where that phrase comes from. There's no rest for the wicked from Isaiah 57. In the book of Joshua, as I said, immediately preceding the book that we're studying today, Joshua is leading the people out of the promised land. And you would think that when they get to the promised land, everything's great. All the problems are solved. They've arrived at their destination. But we find out that even though they are in the land of promise, they're still experiencing drama. They're still experiencing challenge. They've, they've been delivered into their destiny, and yet they continue to face chaos. One of the lessons that we learn from this is that we can arrive at the place that God has for us and still experience challenges. The two are not mutually exclusive. We learn that it's possible to reach our destination and yet not fulfill our destiny. It's one thing to arrive at your destination and your goal, but not fulfill your destiny. Reaching our destination, our goal, doesn't necessarily mean that we have God's blessing either. There are so many times that we accomplish our goal, we reach our destination, and we assume that because we did that, we have the Lord's blessing. And yet we know we're living in rebellion. We know we're living in sin. And God is saying, don't equate accomplishing your goal and reaching your destination as being in my will. The two are very, very different, especially if we're living in sin. Israel ended up conforming to the gods of the culture rather than living for the one true God. When we studied the book of Hosea, we saw this. The, the theological term is syncretism. And syncretism is interesting, and it's, it's kind of insidious, and we do it all the time, because syncretism, religious syncretism, does not mean that people abandon God. They don't forsake and abandon God. They just add other gods to it. Like, you know, we're going we're gonna to worship God, but we're also going to worship the God of agriculture and the God of fertility and all these other gods because we want to hedge our bets. We want to just put it all out there so whatever God responds will be, and God's like, there are no other gods to respond. I am the one true God. This is idol worship. This is false worship. You need to do away with that. And we do it all the time. And we need to understand that an idol is never just a tree stump or a cow or a piece of metal. We look at that and we say, how would they be so dumb to worship this, you know, molten image or this? You know, but it's not about that. It's what it represents. It's what it represents. It's about whatever we count on for provision and for direction and satisfaction. Whatever in our life we look to to provide for us, to give us direction, to bring satisfaction and fulfillment, that is our idol, especially if we worship that above and beyond God. 
For us today, most of us, we come and we worship God on Sunday as the one true God. But then on Monday, we worship the God of prestige or power or relationship or financial security, comfort, fame. Many times we worship ourselves. And there's this dichotomy in our lives where we do one thing on one day and another on the next. And just like Israel, we become defeated because we take our eyes off of God. That's the problem. This was the situation that Israel found themselves in. They were in the promised land, um, and God allowed the Midianites to chastise them, to, to punish them. Enemies of God and enemies of Israel, God allowed them to discipline his people because they were merely going through the motions. They weren't worshiping him from their heart, and they were living sinfully. And so for seven long years, the Midianites were punishing Israel and, and reproving them and, and refining them through the Lord's sovereign hand. It's interesting in times of crisis and trial how quickly we cry out to God. How, how suddenly we want to be close to God when, when we have a burning need and an issue for him to help us with. Prayers are no longer just cute ritual, uh, religious rituals. They're no longer a pious form formality. Communication with God becomes more than merely going through the motions. It becomes real. It becomes personal. Because we have no other options. That's when our faith really gets tested and becomes real. And God continually reminds his people through their circumstances, through our circumstances, that he's the one who saved us. He's the one who delivered us. He's the one who sustains us and protects us on and on and on. And we need to relearn that lesson over and over again. I read a, uh, an article this week that I found fascinating. I felt it tied into this in a, in a unique way. In 2009, a German scientist named uh, Jan Suman took a group of subjects out to an empty parking lot in an open field and blindfolded them and instructed them to walk in a straight line. Some of them managed to keep it to a straight course for 10 or 20 paces. A few lasted for 50 or 100. But in the end, all of them wound up circling back to the point of origin. Not many of them, not most of them, every last one of them. So they start in a straight line, but then they start going either left or right, and they end up basically where they started out. They have no idea, Dr. Suman told NPR. They were thinking that they were walking in a straight line all the time. Dr. Suman's research team explored every imaginable explanation. Some people turned to the right while others turned to the left, but the researchers could not find a discernible pattern. As groups, uh, neither left-handed nor right-handed subjects, demonstrated any predisposition for turning one way more than the other, nor did subjects tested for either right or left brain dominance, the team even tried gluing a rubber sole to the bottom of one shoe to make one leg stronger than the other. It made no difference. It didn't make any difference at all, explained the doctor. So again, it's pretty random what people do. In fact, it isn't even limited to walking. Ask people to swim blindfolded or drive blindfolded. That's a great idea. And no matter how determined they may be to go straight, they quickly begin demonstrating peculiar looping circles in one direction or the other. 
According to this research, there's only one way we can walk in a straight line. By focusing on something ahead of us, like a building, a landmark, or a mountain. If we can fix our eyes on something ahead of us, we can make ourselves avoid our normal crooked course. And I thought, you know, we sing about this all the time. Come thou found of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's redeeming love. That's why the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says, we're to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we look to for guidance and for direction. He's that unchanging fixed point that we look to for direction and guidance and the strength that we need. How important that is. Disobedience disrupts peace. The second lesson that we learn is that praise precedes peace. Praise always precedes peace. Have you ever known somebody that saw something amazing in you even before you saw it in yourself? Somebody who believed in you? Somebody who had faith in you um, that you could do even more than maybe you thought you could do? Gideon feels like a nobody in our text. In verse 15, he says, O Lord, how am I going to deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. As you look throughout Scripture, God always used the least likely people, the weakest, the ones that weren't the obvious choice. You know, Samuel's appointing the next king of Israel. He's going through all of Jesse's sons, and finally he gets to the end. He says, is this all your sons? Well, well, there's David, but he's just a little shepherd boy out in the field. Bring him in. You know, God is always picking the least likely. That's how God works. And that gives you hope and me hope that God can work through us. But despite Gideon's assessment of himself, the angel of the Lord addresses him as valiant warrior. When the angel meets Gideon, he says, valiant warrior. Now, keep in mind, at this point, Gideon hasn't fought any battles. He hasn't won any battles. He is not a warrior. He's at the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat, not only because he's hiding the wheat, but because he's scared of the enemy. He's hiding out, just trying to survive. And the angel appears to him and says, mighty hero, mighty warrior. And Gideon's looking around like, who are you talking to? Couldn't be me. I'm the least of my tribe. There's no way you're talking to me. God's praise in many ways preceded Gideon's peace. But there's also a message here that Gideon's praise preceded the peace that God had for him. We see this um, over and over again in Scripture. Notice in our text that Gideon brings a sacrifice to the angel of God before the angel shows a sign. He says, please show me a sign that you're really from God And yet Gideon goes in obedience and prepares and brings a sacrifice even before the angel touches it with his staff and fire comes and consumes it. Gideon is responding in obedience. And we see that even obedience is praise. Obedience is part of the praise. Even if it's fearful obedience, it's responding in obedience to God. I love the passage in the New Testament, Philippians 4. Six and seven, many of you have it memorized. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We quote that, and we want the peace that God has for us, but yet we, we quickly read over that, and we don't realize that the thanksgiving precedes the peace there. Our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, then the peace of God comes. Praise always precedes peace. The final lesson that I think we see in this is that peace is the presence of God. Peace is the presence of God. As we started out by saying that peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of God at work. In verses 21 to 24 of Judges 6, we saw that Gideon experienced God as Jehovah Shalom, as the God of peace, once he experienced God's presence. Once he felt the assurance of God's presence with him, that's when the peace washed over him. It wasn't because the enemy was already defeated. Gideon hadn't done anything to deal with the enemy. They were still looming large along with other nations, kind of forming treaties together against Israel. The situation was still very scary. But when Gideon felt the presence of God, that's when he felt the peace of God. Jesus said in John 16:33 in the New Testament, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, <clears throat> but take courage, for I have overcome the world. Jesus reminds us, as the angel reminded Gideon, that peace is not determined by our circumstances. It's independent of our circumstances. The world is constantly falling apart, but we don't have to be falling apart with it. Most of the time, we can't control the world, but we can control our response to what's going on in the world. It's one thing to have peace when everything around us is peaceful. That's not really peace. Peace is having that calm and that, that uh, conviction in the midst of the storm. Relationships can falter, jobs may end, health may decline, the economy can continue to dip and turn. But Jesus speaks to all this and says, take courage because I've overcome the world. Like Peter focusing on the Lord, we can walk on water. The minute we look at the waves, our circumstances, what's going on, we lose that focus. We lose that confidence and we sink. It's about personally coming to know Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, in such a way that we have his peace no matter what's going on. Jesus invited us to experience this peace in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, many of you know it by heart. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ's yoke brings peace and rest because, as Isaiah says, he's the Prince of Peace. And as Jesus said before he left this earth, my peace I leave with you. That was a promise he gave us. I'm going, but I'm, I'm leaving my peace with you. My peace is, is available every moment of every day. And basically, that's the whole book of John, I mean the whole chapter of John 15. It's about that abiding relationship. If we abide in God like the, the branch abides in the vine, we'll have everything that we need. It's that abiding, intimate relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> I like what pastor and author John Ortberg said once. He said, peace doesn't come from finding a lake with no storms. It comes from having Jesus in the boat. 
And that's true. You know, we're always looking for the situation in life that's still and calm and without trials. But we're never going to find that. And so it's having the God of peace living inside of us that helps us navigate any situation and find victory. I want to wrap this up. Somebody once wisely said, we're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. Peace begins in the Bible by having peace with God. I talked at the beginning today that oftentimes the the turmoil inside of us eclipses the turmoil that's going on around us. And many of us are not at peace because we're living in guilt and shame and regret over the past and things that we can't undo. And we're not finding peace or deliverance from that. And peace with God begins with a relationship with Jesus. It begins by accepting what he did on the cross, the finished work by grace as a gift, unearned, having peace with God. That's what Christ came for, to restore us into relationship with God. Dwight Moody, the famous pastor, once said, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it, to enter into his peace. And I believe as Christians, we should be leading the way. Leading the way of what it looks like to enter into God's peace and bringing others along with us. Christ is our peace. He has brought us back into relationship with God through the cross. Just as Gideon met Jehovah Shalom in the midst of personal and family and national conflict, we can meet him in the midst of our chaos as well. Often our own thoughts disrupt our peace, but sometimes it's as profound as refocusing, realigning our thoughts with the truth of God's word or the truth of a situation that changes our mindset and our outlook so that we can have courage and trust again. Gideon, as I said, hadn't fought the Midianites. He hadn't yet solved the problem of the enemy. They were still an issue But before Gideon dealt with that issue in the physical realm, he first approached God through the altar and worshipped him as the victor in the spiritual realm. And on that altar, he praised God for his peace, not because the situation had changed, but because God had showed up in the midst of the situation. And friends, as we respond to God in obedience, before we have things figured out, before we see the solution, God shows up and he honors that with his presence. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 26, verse 3, God promises to keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. Paul says in Romans 8, the mindset on the flesh is, is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Again, it's about a mindset. And for many of us, that doesn't come natural. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, so you know how to find God in the midst of chaos and trial. For others of us, it takes, it takes new habits, new routines. And whether that's reading his word, whether that's spending time in prayer, whether that's listening to Christian music and letting the lyrics kind of reorientate our thoughts, whether it's listening to podcasts, whatever it is that realigns your mind and your thinking according to God's word and the peace that he has, finding him in the midst of your chaos. It becomes a way of life rather than just a place that we visit from time to time. 
I like this illustration somebody gave. They said, before the conductor of an orchestra walks onto a stage, the sounds coming from the instruments are in discord. But when he or she arrives, the chaos is stilled. They raise their baton, and the musician's submission to the director results in beautiful music. And only the God of peace, Jehovah Shalom, can accomplish that in my life and in your life. Let's pray.